Well, just as we uh, just as we get started here, let's worship the Lord with our giving. Our ushers are coming to receive the offering, and um, oftentimes we just start taking the offering. I say, go ahead and do it, but let's just take a moment and um, just reflect for just a second. Um, I'm I'm not here because I'm a certain age. I'm here because God is gracious. I'm not here because I'm cool or have a thought or two. I'm here because God's gracious. That's why we're all here. We are here because God has given us breath and capacity and the privilege of responding to him and to working, getting money and all of that. It's all his. And tonight we get to respond by saying uh, thank you for giving us capacities and we want to uh, bless your name he doesn't need our cash but we need to do that so let's just thank him for the privilege of doing that lord thanks for the privilege of worship thank you for the privilege of giving thank you for these hard-earned dollars that have been uh, garnered out in the marketplace and uh, we bless you back in jesus name amen in your your uh, folder that you got, not your folder, but your note sheet that you got when you just came in the door. On the back of it, there are a few announcements, and I'd just like to, down at the bottom, the very last um, note about a Bible class, the Bible and its impact on our lives, Foundations 101. For folks who are just starting out in faith, these uh, classes start Sunday at 10 a.m., and we'd like to encourage you, if you're just starting out, you say, what are the basics of this life following Jesus? Uh, just, we'd like you to check that out, if you would, 10 a.m. in room 214. And then Matt Hickey is teaching class, How Now Shall We Live? A conversation on biblical and cultural, cultural literacy. That, that simply is, is saying, how does, how does biblical truth impact culture? Matt Hickey is in his own right brilliant. Many of you know who Matt is. I think he spoke here two or three weeks ago. And um, I've had the privilege of getting to know Matt well. It, I, I don't hang out with him very much because it makes my head hurt. But other than that, um, he's a wonderful person. No, because of that, I think in part, he's a wonderful person. Tonight, um, I had the privilege of choosing a psalm to speak on. And... Um, I chose Psalm 139, Psalm 139, so if you have your Bibles with you, these scriptures will be on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, Psalm 139, there are 150 Psalms, as many of you know, and about half of them were written by David, at least that's the commonly accepted understanding. Here is this, this king who was a shepherd boy who was musical, who was reflective, he was a poet, he, um, he had this reflective and meditative heart. Many scholars think that, that this particular psalm is at the heart of the psalms themselves in terms of its response to God, in terms of its reflection upon ourselves, and it, it's sort of the emotional center, if you will, of the psalms. Psalms were sung, as you may well know, 
And um, I would have loved, loved to have heard the tune that goes with this. But when you, when you think about singing something like this, when, when you put words that are this uh, passionate or this deep to music, it gets locked in to, to our lives. So as we go through it tonight, just want to reflect on who God is and who we are in relationship to him. That's always the, that's always the big conversation, but let's read the first six verses. I'll read them. Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Let me just read that again. O Lord, you've searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. This psalm has four kind of sections to it. And this first section, verses 1 through 6, that I just read, have to do with the God who knows all, but it isn't just that he knows all, excuse me, I'm sorry, I have my back to you over here and I don't know, oh, I guess you can see it up there. He, he knows all about me. It isn't just that he knows all about everything, which he does, but, but the psalmist is saying, you know all about me. Now, when you read psychologists, they'll say certain things drive human beings, the need for power, the need to be appreciated, the need to be respected, the need to be loved. But this is a fascinating thought. Here, here Paul is saying, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. To be known is kind of scary. Most of us have capacity for doing this, for putting up walls. Some of us don't like to be in more intimate settings because that person could get to know me. I mean, I was speaking um, someplace. I can't remember where it was. That happens when you get older. You, you know you spoke someplace, but you don't know exactly. And this, this idea of affirmation where somebody comes up and, and says, I like you, and we don't know how to respond to that. And one of the things we might say is, well, you don't know me. If you knew me, you wouldn't like me because sometimes that's just how it is. And uh, the idea behind being known is being vulnerable. Well, here's a person who's not being vulnerable, but he is already known. He's already known. Ruth, I'm going to ask you if you'll reach into my pocket of my jacket, the inside pocket that's that zipped up. My phone is right there. I'd like you to bring it to me. This is going to go out on tape. So, folks, this happens, if, if you wouldn't mind. Thank you. It just dawned on me. I'm just going to... Thank you. That's good. I'll just keep it. It just dawned on me that I have on here an app that goes off at 7.14 every evening. And at 7.14, I pray for the nation, okay? 
you know, if my people who are called by my name or, you know, so if it goes off, we're going to do that. I just thought I'd say that because we, okay? So, but, but here I am, and, and I'm a junior high kid, and I'm sitting in church in California, and I'm like 14 years old. And the guy's talking, you know, the preacher's preaching, and I, and I grew up in church, so I went to a lot of church. And so I'm sitting right over here, and I, and I know I'm supposed to be paying attention, but I'm really sort of drawing pictures of airplanes and checking out the girls and stuff. I know I'm not supposed to, but I'm telling you what I was doing. And, and the preacher says, God knows what you're thinking. I go, whoa, and it, but it's too late. He already knows what I'm thinking. I, I am dust. I'm done. And the, and the fact is that he knows what I was thinking, and I'm still here. He knows my every thought. He knows the deepest parts of me. I think one of the deepest needs of human beings is to be known and still loved. To be known and still loved. One of the great fears of human beings is, is that they'll be known and then people will walk away. But to be known and loved is a powerful dimension. The psalmist is saying, here I am, I'm a mortal, and the almighty God who speaks galaxies into existence knows every part of me. And he speaks of it, speaks of him with, with intimacy. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. That kind of intimacy is powerful. Now, in this culture that David is speaking in, in Middle Eastern culture, they had this thought that deities were local. Deities were local. They were not all-encompassing. You had this God over this and that God over that. And here's the psalmist who's saying, you're way more than local, but you are absolutely intimate. You are absolutely here. And the, we live in a culture that is more connected, at least in texts, connected in social media. We live in a culture that is more connected than ever in the history of the world, but yearns for intimacy. Intimacy, by definition, is the degree of need satisfaction. between two persons. That's intimacy. Here, here is the God who says, I want your heart. And when I as a human being says, and I want yours, that's intimate. That's where, it, but to be known is profoundly um, accepting. To walk into a crowded room and you don't know anybody 
is like one of the most awkward things. Some of you have gone to conferences and gone to places, and you, and you walk in, and, and you don't know anybody, and you're sort of looking at your fingernails, and you're trying to get, you know, some hors d'oeuvres over here. And then, but, but if you see one person that you know, you just like hone, hone in on them, like one of those drones or whatever. You just right at them. That's, that's how it is. Or to, or to walk into a room and have somebody look at you and say, hey, I know you. That's, that's terrific. That was the alarm. Lord, thank you for knowing our nation. Thank you for knowing our people. Thank you for loving us in all of our stuff. Thank you for wanting to respond to us in powerful ways. Thank you for your great heart toward every group of people, every community, every village. And thank you that you are the God who knows and you show up in Jesus' name. Amen. I, um, I was in Illinois yesterday morning speaking to a group of 300 pastors and um, they were wanting to connect older pastors to younger pastors because sometimes there gets to be this gulf, not just pastors, it's just the generational thing. And so they'd asked me to come and talk and I went and talked. Back in 1970, when I was pastoring near the University of Illinois, I had a, a secretary named Betsy, Betsy Innes. Betsy Innes had come to the Lord at Carbondale, Southern Illinois University, and she was a flower child. She had long hair, she played the guitar, wore long skirts. Some of you remember, some of you were. And, uh, and uh, Betsy was just this winsome spirit, just this pure heart toward the Lord. She was married to a fellow who wasn't following Jesus. But she, she was just this tremendous, enthusiastic songwriter, had a great love for Jesus. And she just, you, you would like Betsy Innes. After I left Urbana Assembly, her husband came to the Lord. And when I went back to visit, they were both worship leaders. Yesterday, I'm standing in this crowded room, and there's a tap on my shoulder, and I turned to meet the pastor where I used to be, and he said, I just want you to meet someone, and he stepped aside, and I was looking into the face of Betsy Innes, but it wasn't Betsy Innes. It was Betsy Innes' 29-year-old daughter, who was now the worship leader at that church. This is her, I think. Do, is she up? Do, do we have that picture, Ben? Is there a picture up there? There. There she is. How can you not like that face? And she, I mean, it just, it just looked like, and so I just grabbed her and kissed the top of her head. I said, yeah, come here. This, this is a wonderful thing to see generationally what happens. But when I saw her face, the thing I said was, I know you. And I didn't know her name. Her name's Carrie Wells, but I didn't know her, but I knew her. And here's the God who looks at us, and he says, I want you to know, I know you, I know every part of your fabric, I know who you are, and I still want you. My dream is that at the end of time, or at the end of my time, 
however that thing works. When we show up in the throne room, I'm not positive. There are a lot of theories about how that works. But when I show up, you know, there are going to be a gazillion people. I'm believing for a gazillion people up there. And, and I have this dream that, that across the crowded room, the creator of all the universe looks over there and says, Foth, is that you? That's you. I know. Come here. I know you. There's something about being known and wanted that is absolutely motivating. So those are the first six verses. He's saying this is not a local deity, but this is an intimate deity. This is the God. The next six verses read this way. You hem me in, be excuse me, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. I'll read it again. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. He's not just the God who knows me. He is the God who is ever-present. By that, I don't just mean that he's the God who's everywhere. I mean that specifically, he is there for you. He is where you are. If I get on a plane and I'm trying to get away from him and I fly to Kathmandu, Nepal, and I get off the plane, there's Jesus saying, Foth, how are you? Good to see you. This is, the, this is the God who is there before me. He is there with me. When, when um, Brent asked if I'd speak, he said, just when you, when you get us a moment, send your title. So I sent the title on Monday afternoon. I was on my way to Illinois, and I sent the title. And I said, I'd like to call it my talk, The Hound of Heaven. He said, really? I said, yes. He said, did you know that Matt Hickey, when he spoke, like read that old poem, The Hound of Heaven, that, that in fact... He read the whole thing and talked about the history. I said, I had no idea. And he said, and then I talked about it, referenced it when I talked a week or so later. And I said, well, I'm going to reference it again. This, this could be God. Francis Thompson was a person who found himself in difficult circumstances, and Matt referenced the whole thing. But I just want to read some some lines from this 182-line poem of, of God who is after us. This is the God who pursues us. If on the one hand, I have this great need to be known, on the other hand, I have a great desire to be pursued, not to be hurt, but to be helped. I mean, when, when somebody calls you and says, I'd like to offer you a new position, and they start negotiating with you because it's better than the position you had. It's kind of nice to be pursued. If you're a young lady and you have a young gallant, a young man call you and say, I'd just like to see you. And, and you sort of like him, but you're trying to be you know, cool. And, but he keeps pursuing. There's something, at least my daughters say, it's nice to be pursued. 
There's something in all of us that desires to be wanted, not just known, but to be wanted. Listen to, listen to how Francis Thompson says it. I know you've heard this before, but it says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. He was trying to get away. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter, up vistaed hopes I sped and shot, precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet. Here I am frantic trying to get away, and here he comes. He's just coming. I'm frantic. I'm running. I'm scared. He's not chasing. He's just coming. That's just how it is. In all of my frenetic activity, I need somebody who just keeps coming. And when you go on down into the, into the heart of this poem, it, it, it has him responding how little worthy of any love thou art, this is God. Whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee? Save me, save only me. All which I took from thee I did but take not for thy harms, but just that thou mightest seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies is lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. How many men and women across the planet have run from God and are running? But because he knows us and because he knows what, what we need, here he comes. He just keeps coming. And as he comes, as the poet says, he finds us in the silliest, saddest places and tags us and says, you're it. And I believe he means it. There is this idea of the God who courts me, the God who comes after me, the God who is ever present. And when, when the psalmist says it, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heavens, you're there. If I'm at my depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. When I'm trying to run, he finds me and he secures me. The right hand is an expression in scripture of the security that I find in God. I was talking to some college students a few weeks ago, and I said, talk to me about your generation. Just talk to me. I ask this question a lot. And this young man, a believer, said to me, we are the most insecure generation in the history of the world. Now, he, he may not speak for all hundreds of thousands or millions, but he was saying there are so many overwhelming things going on, that we need a place of security. We need to know that we are held fast. We don't know hardly any relationships that have worked, so we're nervous about those. We have all this kind of thing going on, and I need to be secured by you. The psalmist says, wherever I go, there you are. You love me most, you love me best, and you love me farthest. If I go to the farthest out place, there you find. I could read this psalm 
every day and be both inspired and encouraged by it. I used to see I know you as a threat. Now I see I know you as a comfort. I used to say there's no place I can go from your presence. I saw it as a threat. Now I see it as a comfort and a great security. The third portion of this goes into this God who creates us. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. The darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Here he is saying, it isn't just that you know me now, it's that you knew me then. It's not just that you know me now, but you know all of my days that are numbered. I take great comfort in knowing that I won't be here one day longer than the Lord wants me to be here, and I won't be here one day shorter than he wants me to be here. I've told the story before of Bill Borden of Yale, who was the heir to the Borden family fortune, Borden Milk, Borden Dairy, who died at the age, 25, at the age of 25 in Cairo, Egypt. He was going to be a missionary. And somebody said, what, what, what a tragedy that, that life would be cut so short. And one of his colleagues said, a life fully surrendered to Christ can never be cut short. It will always be just right. He knows all of my days. I don't understand how all that works, that he knows all the days they were numbered before. But, but he says, how, how wonderfully you created me. Today, especially when we know so much about science, it seems like the deeper you go, the more wondrous it gets. Our, our grandson, who's 11, is a budding meteorologist. He can tell you about cloud walls and you know, and he, he wanted me to see the latest storms coming across Kansas. And he said, I can show it to you right here on the computer, Grandpa. It's yellow, right? You know. But he, he showed us some pictures of some nebulae the other night. Just unbelievable colors. And I don't know how many hundreds of light years they were away, but it just goes on and on. And when you read this text, you have this sense that God has created us so intricately and so profoundly that we need to wonder at it. A few years ago, Dr. Ben Carson, who spoke at this year's National Prayer Breakfast, also spoke 16 years ago. He's the chief of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins. He's the first surgeon to separate Siamese twins at the head. African-American gentleman who when he was in the fourth and fifth grade growing up in the hood, his teacher said, you'll never amount to anything, but he had a mother who believed in him. And this is what he said to the large assemblage. This was 16 years ago. He said, I want you to think of your telephone number. So, okay, got it. He said, let me tell you what it takes to remember your telephone number. 
And he started, he went into this two minute long, big words about just to remember your telephone number. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. For me to pick up my glasses is 400 separate chemical reactions from my brain to my hand and back, just like that. There are millions of things going on in your body as you're sitting and listening to me, stuff going on in your brain and your nervous system, all of that. For me to say to you, thank you very much, is an unbelievable process from one side of my brain to the other and out my mouth. And I can not only say thank you very much, but I can hold my glasses and pick up the this, whatever this is, this marker, and I can walk around. All at the same time, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And every day, if you wanted, every day you could reflect on that. I'll not forget walking out in our driveway when Susanna, who's now a mother of three herself, was just a little girl, and she was lying belly down in the driveway in Urbana, Illinois. It was back in the three-piece suit days, and she said, Daddy, come here. Look at this. And she was looking at what we call a willy worm, one of those caterpillars that's orange and brown. She, her nose was about that. She said, come down here and look at this. And in one of my smarter moments, I got down on my belly in my three-piece suit in the driveway with my daughter. And willy worms look a lot different when you're like here as opposed to like here. They're just, they are really something. God's creations are fearfully and wonderfully made. You've, you've heard me talk about light, and this scientist that I met at the University of Illinois who specialized in light, he got a huge award, and they had a big symposium for two days in New York City, and they had a black tie gala, and all of his former, many of his former students came, and they were heads of chemistry's department, chemistry departments in places like Cluj, Romania, and Athens, and Greece, and in Alberta, Canada, and Michigan State. These were all his former students. And, and, he, and he, he had come to the Lord six years before. And he stood up and gave a talk. And when he gave a talk, at the end he said, all of my life I have been discovering God's creations. But six years ago, I discovered God. And everything I am or, or ever hope to be, I owe to him through Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. And he took off his lavalier and put it on the podium. And the whole scientific convocation came to their feet in a standing ovation because they, they just don't do that. You don't talk that way. But when you find a scientist who has discovered the God who creates these things and he affirms not only is the creation good, but the crea there is a creator. There's something so powerful about that. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then the psalmist goes on to acknowledge. He acknowledges in that his roots. And he goes on to say this. Which is a very interesting part. And we'd sort of like to skip it. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And abhor those who rise up against you? And I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. And you're going along. You're doing pretty good. He's the God who knows you. He's intimate. And the psalmist is saying, and, and he's everywhere. Wherever you go, he's going to be with you. And, and I know my roots, and I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And you get to this part, and he says, kill those suckers. And you know, he just gives them one of those. You say, what's that about? What's that? In, in the sense here, 
is that not only is this God intimate, not only is he ever-present, not only is he the creator, but he is also a just God. And there comes a time in the future when men are called before the justice of God. And here is, this is a feeling statement. He says, for, for people who spit on you, like I, I'd like to spit on them. That's a, I mean, that's, there's something about that. that he's just ex expressing his heart. There is something about a God who is intimate and ever-present and creative and just that we can count on. I need a just God. I don't need an unjust God. I don't need a God who operates by whim. I need a God who has that whole, if, if you'll excuse the phrase, who has that whole package, that all those pieces put together. And then you come to the last part where he says, search me, O God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Here he is saying, have at me. Here I am, Lord. I know you already know me, but I'd like to collaborate in this. I'd like to say, I know you know me, but could you show me what you know? Can you show me those places in my life where I need to straighten up or I need revelation or I need insight or I need compassion where I'm getting in the way of what it is you want to do? Show me that part of me. I want to do better. Some of you have heard me reference my friend some years ago, Vern Clark, was head of the Navy. And I took some friends to see him. We walked in and we were chatting and so forth. And I, um, I just happened to say, Vern, what is it that makes you want to get up in the morning? This is a four-star admiral in charge of the whole Navy. And he thought a moment and he said, I wake up every day realizing that I lead the most powerful naval, naval force that has ever sailed the seven seas in the history of the world. And he paused and his eyes welled up and he said, and I want to make it better. What if I woke up each morning and say, Lord, you have fearfully and wonderfully made me. You know everything there is to know about me. I'd like to do better. I'd like to respond more quickly. These, these places in my life where I'm, a, where I'm insecure, and all of us are insecure just in different places. These places in my life where I'm insecure, can you come and work there? Can you show me what I need to give up, if you will, to honor you? This little area of my life that, that just so, I just love it, this is really nice, and I, but but you may be saying, I need to put that on the altar, if you will. I have a friend who's now with Jesus, who when he was 70 years old, I was 16, and he played me in tennis and beat the tar out of me, just ran me all over the court. Those old guys just stand there and spin it over there and drop it over there, and you just, you know, you got more goods, you got more power, but they just know how to play the game. And he told the story of being in India. He was an old Indian missionary. 
And he told the story of just wanting God to overwhelm him with his presence. And he said, I was on my knees before God and I said, God, I just, I just want you to fill me to the full and just overflow me and just, I just want you to. And he said, I felt like the Lord said to me, I'd like to do that, Bob. Could you give me your tennis racket? And tennis was the only thing they did for exercise out there in India where he was. And, and he said, but Lord, you know, I need my physical health. It's good for me. It keeps me strong and limber and, and it's not bad. I mean, it's not a bad thing at all, but I just need you to. And the Lord said, Bob, I want you to give me your tennis racket. Just, I know you love it, but why don't you just give that to me? You want me to have all, give, give me that. And he said, that night, figuratively, I laid my tennis racket on the altar. And he said, and when I did that, I sensed his overwhelming presence in my life. I saw his majesty and I saw his grace and his power and his creativity and his joy and his great compassion. And he just inundated me with that. And then this old man, he was 70, this old man, he paused and he said, you know, God gave me back my tennis racket, but he never gave me back my heart. There is something about inviting the God of all the universe, even as we follow him, maybe especially as we follow him, to keep moving in the nooks and crannies of our lives that we might not be pay much attention to or they may be little special areas little things that we just they're just pets and he says you know I just like to be God of all of you of your whole being and the psalmist says it that way search me O God and know my heart test me and know my anxious thoughts see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He says, take, take me away from the bad thing and take me toward, toward eternity. Here is the God who knows me, wants me, created me, and is here at every moment to respond to my cry of search me, O God, know my heart, and lead me in your way everlasting.